This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 8. Seven Propositions of Narrative Economics So far, we've seen that popular narratives gone viral have economic consequences. Ultimately, we want economists to model this relationship to help anticipate economic events. First, though, we want to offer some basic propositions about economic narratives that we can use to understand historically important narratives and to identify new narratives as they develop. Before we begin, let's review a few key features of economic narratives. As the Bitcoin narrative illustrates, an economic narrative reminds people of facts they might have forgotten, offers an explanation about how things work in the economy, and affects how people think about the justification or purpose of economic actions. The narrative may imply something about the way the world works. In the Bitcoin narrative, the notion that computers are taking over, that we are entering a new cosmopolitan era freed from the perennial problems of local government incompetence and corruption, and how we can use that information to our, our advantage. Or the narrative may suggest that performing a certain economic action is a useful learning experience that will yield possible benefits in the future. Sometimes, performing the economic action is a way of involving ourselves in the narrative itself. By taking part in the narrative, we can say that we are a part of history. For example, by purchasing Bitcoin, we just joined the international capitalist elite. Proposition number one. Epi epidemics can be fast or slow, big or small. Economic narrative epidemics come in many different sizes and time frames. There is no standard course for a narrative epidemic, and rapid growth of a fast epidemic does not mean it will have long-run significance. In the appendix to this book, we review models from medical epidemiology that show that contagion and recovery parameters can be chosen for the models that imply fast-big epidemics, fast-small epidemics, slow, big epidemics, and slow, small epidemics. Because a narrative can come and go over many decades, it may last longer than any data series on which economists rely to measure the narrative's impact. We must therefore not rush to judgment on the impact of a narrative. For example, if we assume that a viral economic narrative is exactly like a meme that goes viral on Facebook or Twitter over a period of days, then we will miss the possibility that a historic long boom is the result of an epidemic that has occurred over a much longer time frame. Another example, if we do not appreciate that some epidemics are fast and some are slow, we are likely to over-rely on bestseller status to judge a work's importance. Bestseller lists tend to reflect sales over short intervals of time. The New York Times list of best-selling books, for example, reports on the books that sold the most copies in just the current week. From earlier chapters, we understand why the news media emphasize a short time interval. They have to keep coming up with news stories. The short time frame explains why the Bible and the Quran are never on the bestseller lists. If we look at the New York Times bestseller lists from decades past, hardly any of the books will be familiar. Most were flash-in-the-pan short-term epidemics.
the contagion rate also varies greatly from one narrative epidemic to another. For example, one example of a narrative epidemic with a very high contagion might be that of a national emergency, like the start of a war. With such narratives, people feel that the story is so important that they have license to interrupt any other conversation in the news, or to speak with people with whom they do not normally communicate. An example of a successful narrative with a very low contagion rate might be a patriotic story illustrating a country's national greatness, a story that is brought up only at appropriate times at home, in the classroom, or at events sponsored by civic organizations. Such a narrative can develop slowly into a huge epidemic if the forgetting rate is low enough. Narratives also differ in their recovery rate or forgetting rate. Narratives with high recovery rates are often isolated, not part of a constellation. Narratives with low recovery rates include those with constant reminders. For example, when we see homeless people and beggars on the street, we remember narratives about massive unemployment during a depression. Longer-term narratives are more likely to have an impact on one's view of the world or one's sense of the meaning of life. As the mathematical model shows, a high contagion parameter and a low recovery rate mean that almost the whole population eventually hears the narrative, sometimes very quickly. But the same narrative can reach most of the population rather slowly if the contagion parameter is low, but the recovery rate is even lower. The following example is illustrative. I conducted a questionnaire survey in the United States right after the October 19, 1987 stock market crash, which was the biggest one-day drop in U.S. history. I asked a random sample of U.S. high-income individuals exactly when they first heard about the crash. Of the respondents, 97% said they heard of it on the day of the drop. The average answer was 1.56 p.m. Eastern Time. Most of the respondents did not hear about the drop via the morning newspapers or the evening television news. They heard it direct by word of mouth as the event was happening. Proposition number two. Important er economic narratives may comprise a very small percentage of popular talk. In trying to judge the importance of economic narrative epidemics, we should not base our conclusions on the assumption that the most economically important narratives are those that are constantly talked about. Very significant epidemics may generate very little talk. In addition, because people are always talking, some kind of narrative is always spreading. In studying economic narratives, we must not be distracted by the small talk that is not useful in explaining economic changes. In 1932, near the height of the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt challenged incumbent Herbert Hoover in the U.S. presidential election. Writing for the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Arthur Kroc tried to summarize what ordinary people were saying about the economic situation. He listened to people talking, avoiding prompting as much as possible, saying, quote, By train, motor car, airplane, and on foot, I have wandered 10,000 miles. I have talked with, observed, and listened to many hundreds of people on trains, in restaurants, on the streets, in speakeasies, in hotel lobbies, in clubs, and in their own homes, end quote. He visited 20 U.S. cities over the course of a month and wrote down ca casual conversations he'd heard 
or overheard word for word that seemed to exemplify what people were saying. He was a little surprised that almost all of the talk was banal. Quote, little did I hear of books or plays. Not one new joke was told by a drummer in my hearing. Not a word of personal enthusiasm for any candidate of office did I hear. End quote. Croc's article stands as a warning not to be complacent about narratives that are contagious only in certain venues, and that are not talked about except at certain times. Economic theories are not the topic of casual conversations, even though the news media discuss economic ideas frequently, and people must be thinking about them. Croc found that people wanted to talk incessantly about the effects and terrors of the Great Depression. For example, he records the words he heard in, an, in 1932 from a taxi driver, quote, a taxi driver in Cleveland. Did you come in from the east? How are things there? If you want to know how they are here, watch the garbage cans behind the all-night restaurants about three o'clock in the morning. See the guys who are getting their meals that way. They aren't all bums by a long shot. Do they think back east that Roosevelt can make things better? Anyhow, they can't be worse. I used to make a good living before Hoover came in. Not on this taxi. I was firing on the Central, but they took my job away. No business. This is a good burg, but it is flat now. When do you suppose it will come back? End quote. This conversation suggests a contagious narrative about good people made so desperate by the Great Depression that they are reduced to eating garbage. The idea conjures a mental image and an emotion of disgust. The taxi driver also asks a question for which there is no clear answer. When will the prosperity return? He wants to know whether the country is stuck in a long-term depression because his economic decisions, for example, how much to spend, depend on the answer. The desperation narrative of people eating garbage may suggest a long haul, which leads the taxi driver to ask the urgent question, when do you suppose it will come back? The driver wanted some enlightenment about the future from the apparently knowledgeable croc, but he probably did not expect a quantitative answer. Rather, he probably hoped croc would provide some kind of narrative offering clues as to the future. In judging the impact of economic narratives on human economic behavior, we will find it helpful to recall that conversations rarely touch on important economic decisions, such as how much to save for retirement, 5% of your income, 10% or more. Try to remember any conversation on this topic, and likely you won't dredge up a single one. And yet people have to make decisions about how much to save, and they must base this decision on something. Maybe that decision during the Great Depression was influenced by the narratives of depression hardship, like those men eating from garbage cans at 3 a.m. Maybe, too, the decision was based on the impressions of worried experts whom nobody really knew, suggesting that there might be a reason to fear a long-lived economic downturn with serious human consequences. On their own, any individual, vague narratives, might not have determined behavior, but a constellation of such narratives may have. Proposition 3. Narrative constellations have more impact than any one narrative. Narratives that occur together in a constellation may have different origins, but in our imaginations they seem grouped together in terms of some basic idea, and they reinforce one another's contagion. Alternative terms for narrative constellations include grand narrative, master narrative, 
and meta-narrative. But I prefer not to use any of these terms because they suggest more organization or intellectual quality than is warranted when simple story contagion spreads narratives across a broad public. Sometimes narratives within a constellation are stripped of identifying names or places, and the narrative takes the form of, they say that, without stating who they are. In using the pronoun they, the teller of the they say narrative conveys that there is a constellation of narratives featuring or told by seemingly authoritative persons. The borders of such narratives of such narrative constellations may be redrawn from time to time, with a particular narrative borrowing contagion from other currently contagious narratives. As we've seen, cryptocurrencies are backed by a constellation of related narratives, with a few main stars and thousands or millions of smaller stars. As of 2018, nearly 2,000 cryptocurrencies competed with the original Bitcoin. Each of these cryptocurrencies is a story of entrepreneurship, of eager developers with a new idea. But the largest constellation of cryptocurrency stories focuses on Bitcoin-related stories. In one narrative, the popular singer Lily Allen turned down an offer in 2009 to do one performance and be paid in, bit in Bitcoin. This narrative has a memorable punchline. Allen is kicking herself in re regret today, for if she had accepted the offer and held on to her Bitcoin, she would have been a billionaire by 2017. Stories like this one help sustain the growth of the Bitcoin narrative and Bitcoin prices by invoking people's feelings of regret for not discovering the investment themselves. Like so many other narratives, this story focuses on a celebrity who starts a narrative or keeps it going. It is difficult to define the exact parameters of narrative constellations. Often we can find only superficial examples of some of their stories. Most narratives are never written down and are lost forever. Moreover, the narratives sit in the background and are rarely expressed when decisions are made. For example, if you are discussing with your spouse whether to buy a new car this year or wait until times look more secure, you may be unlikely to tell your spouse one of the stories that makes you feel secure or insecure. Thus, it becomes difficult to establish a connection between the narratives and the actions. The final link between a verbal narrative and economic action may ultimately be nonverbal. Proposition number four. The economic impact of narratives may change through time. An economic narrative's impact on behavior depends on details of the narrative's current mutation and other related narratives. When we rely on digitized data, on words or phrases that are flags for narratives, we must resist the temptation to assume that all the narratives with these flags have the same meaning through time. We have to read the narratives in terms of their implication for action, in the context in which they were spoken, at least. In the future, some information processing innovation might make this undertaking less dependent on human judgment. Let's look again at the October 19, 1987 stock market crash, the biggest one-day crash in percentage terms in history. The topic still comes up regularly, often on major anniversaries of that event. We might believe that memories of that crash make stock markets vulnerable to another crash, because fear of a crash may cause people to react to the apparent beginnings of a drop in stock prices. 
but the narrative of the 1987 crash need not have any such effect if people do not think current circumstances are similar. In 1987, there was much discussion of a new computerized trading program called Portfolio Insurance. Along with other factors, narratives about portfolio insurance led to a predisposition to consider selling that was peculiar to that time. Other disturbing stock market events were surrounded by narratives that had nothing to do with portfolio insurance. After Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia in July of 1914, starting World War I, stock prices began to fall precipitously. Reacting to the panic, the New York Stock Exchange and all the major European stock exchanges closed their doors. Even though the U.S. was not involved in the war, the New York Stock Exchange did not reopen until December 12th. In his 2014 book about this closing, titled When Washington Shut Down Wall Street, William Silber details a number of stories and rumors that contributed to the market's severe reaction. Notably, panicky European investors scrambled to get their investments out of, out of the United States while they could. During this European gold rush, massive amounts of gold were shipped from the U.S. to Europe, despite increasing danger to transatlantic shipping. There was much talk about the Panic of 1907 as proof that U.S. markets were unstable, along with fears that another panic might occur. In addition, there was a baseless rumor that the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which triggered World War I, was part of a conspiracy involving the Russians, who were hoarding gold in preparation for a great war. In contrast, the beginning of World War II in 1939 did not close the U.S. stock market. After the United Kingdom declared war on Germany in September of 1939, marking the beginning of World War II, the Standard & Poor's Composite Index gained almost 10% in one trading day. Newspapers expressed general surprise at such a positive market reaction, and were mostly at a loss as to explain why the market did not repeat the 1914 experience. Apparently, the very different response had something to do with a narrative that World War I had, ultimately, proven very profitable for the investors who'd held on to their stock market investments and profited from selling armaments or supplies to Europe. The human stories of World War I and World War II might be very similar, but there was a huge difference in the narratives describing successful investors around the start of each war. We must pay attention to the names that people attach to their narratives. Seemingly minor changes in the name of a narrative can matter a lot, especially if the new name attaches to a different constellation of narratives. In linguistics, synonyms never have exactly the same meaning. If pressed, people can state complex thoughts about the slightly different connotations of synonyms. In neurolinguistics, synonyms have different connections in the neural network. Some of those connections can matter a lot in terms of the economic ideas which they support. Proposition number five. Truth is not enough to stop false narratives. Suddenly prominent economic narratives sometimes appear mysteriously and for no reason. One such a narrative occurred after the 2007 to 2009 world financial crisis, when near-zero near interest rates were interpreted as a harbinger of a lost decade, as they had been for Japan in the 1990s. 
The Japanese lost decades story is just one example, just one observation, and hence of no statistical significance. But it was contagious enough around the world to rekindle Great Depression narratives, and it launched serious fears about secular stagnation. Indeed, such narratives and fears can have serious effects on the economy and on our lives. For example, according to political scientist Stephen Van Evera, 1984, World, world War I started at least partly because a false because a false narrative, which he calls the cult of the offensive, went viral. This narrative was a theory that the country that moves first to attack another will generally have the advantage. The idea was supported by some historical narratives and illustrated by simplistic psychological, mathematical, and bandwagon arguments. Ultimately, Van Evera argues, this theory led to instability. Everyone wanted to attack first. Germany thought it had a window of opportunity to successfully pursue a preventative war with Russia. But the narrative was wrong. It had economic consequences, a huge arms race, and resulted in a war that was disastrous for both the offense and the defense. Norman Engel called the narrative The Great Illusion in a 1911 book with that title. Engel's ideas were convincing to many, and he later won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work. But they, but they did not go viral fast enough to prevent the war. The illusion won out even after it had been decisively disproven, because the proof did not spread as fast as the illusion did. By analogy, we see that economic narratives are not always based on up-to-date information. Sometimes they are based on whatever narratives are going viral at a particular time. While general knowledge steadily advances in many respects, we do not necessarily see a steady progress in the knowledge that often importantly affects economic behavior. The narratives that surround and define Bitcoin provide an example. There are brilliant computer scientists who are fascinated by cryptocurrencies, but who won't say whether the captivating ideas that generate public excitement are ultimately right or wrong. Fortunately, in matters of simple fact, unencumbered by any human interest or story quality, modern society stays generally on target, or at least willing to stand corrected, if in error. For example, most people can name the various highways around their home correctly, and will accept correction if an error is pointed out to them. They also routinely trust medical doctors to tell them the truth about things they know nothing about. Well, sort of anyway. In a 2003 study, the World Health Organization concluded, quote, poor adherence to treatment of chronic diseases is a worldwide problem of striking magnitude, end quote. The WHO went on to support that only about 50% of patients in developed countries consistently follow doctor's orders for chronic illnesses, and even fewer do so in emerging countries. Adherence is probably even worse when it comes to following advice from more controversial economic pundits or financial planners. But where does advice end and speculation begin? And how do we distinguish informed speculation from confabulation or fiction? The slope is slippery. Ultimately, a story's contagion rate is unaffected by its underlying truth. A contagious story is one that quickly grabs the attention of and makes an impression on another person, whether the story is true or not. 
A study by Surosh Fasuji and his co-authors published in Science in 2018 used social media data to compare the contagion rates of true stories with the contagion rates of false stories. The researchers chose the stories from among those that had been vetted by six fact-checking websites, Snopes.com, PolitiFact.com, FactCheck.com, TruthOrFiction.com, HoaxSlayer.com, and UrgentLegend.about.com. They found 95-98% to 98% agreement across these sites as to a story's truth or falsity. They also looked at 126,000 rumors spread by 3 million people, and they found that false stories had six times the retweeting rate on Twitter as true stories. That's 600% more. Holy crap. The researchers did not interpret that finding as specific to Twitter, and the result may be specific to the time of the study, a time when mistrust of conventional media sources was higher than usual. Rather, these authors interpreted their results as confirming that people are more likely to share novel information. In other words, contagion reflects the urge to titillate and surprise others. We can add another twist to that conclusion. A new story correcting a false story may not be as contagious as the false story, which means that the false narrative may have a major impact on economic activity long after it is corrected. Proposition number six. Contagion of economic narratives builds on opportunities for repetition. Contagion depends on the frequency of opportunities to slip a narrative into a conversation. It is usually impolite or rude to change the conversation subject, unless justified by some extraordinary circumstance. Novel ideas and concepts may increase opportunities for contagion, for example, the contagion rate of narratives about the stock market probably increased when, in the 1920s and 30s, the public began paying attention to stock price indexes. The same thing happened with narrative epidemics about housing after the 1970s when real estate agents and home buyers began to recognize home price indexes. In both cases, news media writers, looking for new facts to justify writing an attention-grabbing story, found themselves revisiting these indexes frequently. Consider another example, familiar to almost all of us, the song Happy Birthday. It is probably not an important economic narrative. You might say that it is not even a real narrative because the words of the song do not tell a story. But there is a story attached to the song in practically everyone's consciousness. The story is a sequence of events, repeated with variations on birthdays. The story is this. Based on a long tradition that goes back generations, people have assembled to celebrate the birthday of a loved one. After someone announces that the ceremony is about to begin, the birthday cake is brought in with flaming little candles, one for each year of the person's life, unless he or she is too old, in which case there will be a, com a commentary or jokes about the number of candles. The birthday person makes a wish and attempts to blow out all the candles in one breath in order to make the wish come true. Of course, almost no one actually believes that birthday wishes come true, but they repeat the ritual in deference to long traditions. In sometime, sometimes, additional words are added to the song, such as, and many, many more, which may make an awkward moment because the syllables do not match the melody. The ceremony ends with applause. 
Happy Birthday to You is a good example of a contagious narrative because it has spread around the world in many translations, and it may be the best-known song of all time. It is contagious in part because of the constant reappearance of birthdays, not because it is anybody's favorite song. It is not particularly admired for its beauty or grace. It grew unplanned and uncontrolled. There is no history of a government edict requiring the song to be sung, or a marketing campaign promising lifelong popularity for those who sing it or have it sung to them. Digital counts show that the song grew in English like a disease epidemic in the 1920s and 30s, faltered around World War II when people had more important things in their mind, and then took off again. Warner slash Chappelle Music had long claimed a 1935 copyright on, the, copyright on the song, and it collected millions of dollars per year in royalties. But it lost the copyright in 2016 when it was shown that Happy Birthday to You had striking similarities to the published 1893 song Good Morning to All. Good Morning to All was a virtual non-entity, even though it closely resembles Happy Birthday to You with the same melody and very similar words. The Happy Birthday version is so similar that it might easily have come into being by accident when some kindergarten teacher, when in some kindergarten classroom, when a teacher somewhere, somehow, wanted to mark the occasion of a child's birthday. The mutation then went, went viral from that obscure beginning. Let's consider why the seemingly minor mutation has done so much better than the original. The slight change in the lyrics served to make Happy Birthday part of a new and growing ritual and a symbol of caring, the birthday party, whose popularity began to grow around the 1890s. This association with other infectious narratives enhanced the song's contagion, and because the ritual recurs from year to year, it reinforced memory and reduced the recovery rate that eventually extinguishes most epidemics. Also, the change in the words allows the singers to insert the birthday person's name, thus personalizing the song and adding more human interest. Also consider why the authors of Good Morning to All did not realize that they could become millionaires if they just changed the song into Happy Birthday to You and copyrighted it. At some level, it may seem that they should have realized that the ritual of birthday parties was likely to persist and to gain in popularity. They should have known that a song that ties into the birthday ritual, a song that is very short, easy to memorize, and sung frequently, should be a winner and they should have realized that they could copyright the song and extract millions from commercial outlets. Easier said than done, as what is obvious now was not so obvious then. There are so many other possible permutations of the song. There are 16 words in Good Morning to You. Suppose we decide to change half the words while keeping the total number constant. There are thus approximately 519 million ways to replace the words. Suppose there are 100 words in the English language that are simple enough to replace 8 of the 16 words. That means that there are 10 quadrillion times 519 million possible variants of the song. It would be impossible to think through all of these possibilities in advance and realize how to make a fortune by tweaking the song. So the invention of Happy Birthday to You out of Good Morning to You was likely just a random event, unlikely ever to happen. 
but it did happen. It was unappreciated at first, but then a new contagion quietly started without mentioning the author of the change, who is hopelessly forgotten. It led then to a vast constellation of narratives involving the song infused into movies, TV shows, and social media, among other formats. Proposition 7. Narratives thrive on attachment, human interest, identity, and patriotism. Usually, economic narratives rely on human interest stories for their contagion because human beings are attracted to such stories. When an identified personality is associated with a narrative, a face we can picture in our minds, then our brains involve our models of people, voices, and faces with the story, lowering the likely rate of forgetting. But the human interest stories themselves may not be enough to make a narrative contagious. Another successful economic narrative is sometimes the invention of creative minds who sense what is contagious and what is not, and who put the elements together well enough to launch a contagious narrative. Those who aspire to create viral narratives must choose their celebrities carefully, because the narratives work best when the intended audience personally recognizes and identifies with the celebrity. For example, there is the story of Washington, sorry, George Washington and the Cherry Tree, which has been popular for over 200 years. It first appeared in print soon after Washington's death in 1799 in a new edition of the best-selling book, The Life of George Washington with Curious Anecdotes, Equally Honorable to Himself and Exemplary to His Young Countrymen by Mason Weems. Based on the, t on the book's title, it is clear that Weems was interested in launching tellable narratives about George Washington. Weems said that he heard the cherry tree story from an aged lady who was a distant relative and, when a girl, spent much of her time in the family. Quote, when George, said she, was about six years old, he was made the wealthy master of a hatchet, of which, like most boys, he was immoderately fond and was constantly going about chopping everything that came in his way. One day, in the garden, where he often amused himself hacking his mother's pea sticks, he unluckily tried the edge of his hatchet on the body of a beautiful young English cherry tree, which he barked so terribly that I don't believe the tree ever got the better of it. George, said his father, do you know who killed that beautiful little cherry tree yonder in the garden? This was a tough question, and George staggered for a moment under it, but quickly recovered himself, and looking at his father, with the sweet face of youth, brightened with the inexpressible charm of all-conquering truth, he bravely cried out, I can't tell a lie, Pa. You know I can't tell a lie. I did cut it down with my hatchet. End quote. This little story is widely remembered in the United States today as a moral lesson. A search on I Can't Tell a Lie and Washington gets 188,000 Google hits, over a third as many as I Can't Tell a Lie by itself. This Washington story is on its way to usurping a basic sentence. Why is it such a contagious story? It must be because it is about the first president of the United States, and it has patriotic appeal. In that context, it is a great narrative, about almost anyone else, it would be nothing. There isn't much to the story, just that as a child, Washington didn't lie. I Can't Tell a Lie, and Lincoln, gets 102,000 hits on Google, 
as the equally famous President Lincoln is introduced into the story and sometimes even substituted for Washington. The story, involving two legendary U.S. figures, is part of a constellation of, ep of economic narratives about honesty. Those narratives seem to be a part of a tradition of honesty, not unique to the United States, but maybe stronger than in some other countries, that has likely helped propel the U.S. economy by creating trust in business dealings and by limiting bribery and corruption. Often, the basic human interest element of an economic narrative is embodied in somewhat different stories going viral at about the same time. Different versions of the narrative substitute different celebrities who are appropriate for the target audience. For new narratives involving celebrities, there are already familiar narratives about the celebrities in memory, which can enhance contagion. The constellation of narratives built around celebrities is self-reinforcing. In extreme cases, the celebrities attain superhuman status, and ideas associated begin to seem natural and obvious. George Washington's picture is on every $1 bill and on every quarter-dollar coin in the U.S. Sometimes, everyday people coin apt or pithy quotes, but these quotes become contagious only after the story is altered to substitute the name of a famous person as the originator of the quote. For example, since the middle of the 20th century, the socialist slogan, quote, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, end quote, has been attributed to Karl Marx. But actually, those words were emphasized by socialist philosopher Louis Blanc in 1851, when Marx was still virtually unknown, and a variation of the phrase appears in the Bible. <clears throat> Louis Blanc was more famous than Marx until after 1900, but today he is largely forgotten. Thus, the quote became attributed to Marx in the mid-20th century by unknown persons who started a mutated epidemic by attaching a new celebrity to it. The website WikiQuotes tracks down the origins of famous quotes, and typically the famous person was quoting someone else, if he or she even said it at all. But no matter, wiki quotes nonwithstanding, the story of the quote's true source will never go viral because it is not contagious. Contagion is the all-important element. If the narratives are not repeated in human communications, they will be gradually forgotten. Narratives involving celebrities can suddenly lose their contagion if some event discredits the celebrity, whether or not the ideas in the narratives are true or good. As we've seen, the choice of celebrities has patriotic dimensions, as people have a preference for individuals in their own country or their own ethnic group. This preference helps to, exp to explain why the epidemic spread of narratives is often not seen or acknowledged. To acknowledge it typically requires admitting its foreign origin. Practically, no one has an incentive to present an idea as coming from abroad, except in unusual circumstances. Thus, we have the illusion that important ideas came spontaneously to a compatriot, and we see nothing of the idea's true world epidemic. Beyond celebrities, there are issues of particle or party or regional or religious loyalty. Patriotism does not mean just flag-waving assertions of loyalty. It is also the feeling that only in our own country does anything important, good or bad, happen. For example, in 
the CBS News in the United States, they run a, re a regular morning feature titled Your World in 90 Seconds that purports to tell you very succinctly everything you know, need to know about today's news. But the name is inaccurate because the report doesn't cover the world. Virtually all the news stories are from the United States, with the exception of tidbits about the British royal family or Vladimir Putin. Maybe the title is accurate for many of the Americans who think that the United States is the world, despite having only 5% of the world's population. Conclusions We have seen seven key propositions with respect to economic narratives. One, epidemics can be fast or slow, big or small. The timetable and magnitude of pop pop of epidemics can vary widely. Two, important economic narratives may comprise a very small percentage of popular talk. Narratives may be rarely heard and still economically important. Three, narrative constellations have more impact than any one narrative. Constellations matter. Four, the economic impact of narratives may change through time. Changing details matter as narratives evolve over time. Five, truth is not enough to, to stop false narratives. Truth matters, but only if it is in your face obvious. Six, Contagion of economic narratives builds on opportunities for repetition. Reinforcement matters. 7. Economic narratives thrive on human interest, identity, and patriotism. Human interest, identity, and patriotism matter. In Part 3, we will use these seven propositions as a framework to look at historically important economic narratives to identify what we can learn from economic narratives and their consequences in the real world. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.